0: Let's take our Bibles and go to Psalm 103, Psalm 103. Actually, we don't really have a text, specific text tonight uh, to work on. We're going to go through a lot of passages, yet this is the beginning point of tonight's message, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. So this is a big question, very big question that I want to raise tonight for all of us. Why do we pray if everything is done according to God's will? His sovereign controls everything in the throne above everything. So no matter what, his will be done. Let's ask another question then. Does prayer change anything? Every rightly-minded Christian would say, yes, right? But does prayer really change the situation we are in? Let's, let's think about it. The Bible teaches that God is the absolute sovereign of the entire universe. So what does this truth imply? It implies that everything that has happened is happening and will be happening, will happen, is done according to God's sovereign plan and will. So no matter how hard Satan and God's enemies try to thwart God's will, everything will be done according to God's plan and will. Here we find one question that is both philosophical and practical. If everything will be eventually done according to God's will, does our prayer change the situation in our life? If everything will be done according to God's plan, does it, does it really matter whether we pray or not? Whether we pray or not, God will do what he wants. Then, what is the point of praying, without, uh, praying about anything? So there are two major problems here. In people's puny little tiny brains, there's one exa- extreme that people, one extreme exact uh, conclusion that people come to concerning this truth. Some Christians misunderstand the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over the universe and doubt the efficacy of prayer. So they say if everything is done according to God's will, why bother to pray? And you might think there's a theoretic question, a theoretic thing that I'm making it up, but it's not a hypothetical situation. I've heard of a brother in a church I was part of. I I was a member of the church. And this church, actually, this pastor of this church was a phenomenal preacher. And he preached on God's sovereignty many, 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 many times. And this brother, hearing about God's absolute sovereignty, concluded on his own, I'm not going to pray. Everything will be done according to God's will. Why bother to pray? I'd rather study the Bible in that time, with that time. I'd rather help other people, is our praying. Because God's going to do whatever He wants to do. How can we be sure that God does everything according to God's, His will if our prayer constantly changes things then? So this is now, we need to deal with another extreme problem. You know, the first problem was this. You know, God's sovereign, so why would we pray? <laughs> Waste of time. God's going to do what He wants to do. And on, on the other hand, there are other people who call themselves Christians, who have concluded that God's sovereignty over the universe is not absolute for prayer to change the situation. So some Christians, I don't know if they're really Christians, but they overemphasize uh, the importance of human free will and human responsibility and argue that God's sovereignty and knowledge of the future are limited. And there's actually a theological term. It's called open theism. I think Pastor Matt has talked about it before. Open theism is this. You know, God is God, but he has opened a door for humanity about himself. It was his willing and voluntary action that God has limited himself, especially his sovereignty and also his foreknowledge, the knowledge of his future, so that people will not be toys in his hands. So, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, this. so um, the thing is, you know, these people think that if God's sovereignty is absolute, then humans become mere toys in God's hands. And so they argue God's willingly, voluntarily, limited himself concerning his sovereignty and his knowledge of the future. But if we follow this line of argument, we can end up concluding that our prayers don't just change things in the world but also change God's plan and will. Have you heard the phrase like, our prayer can move the throne of God? I've heard that, once I heard that expression, I, I, was, I thought, I mean, that's cool. I mean, we can pray and God's throne moves. But what does God say about his throne? <laughs> does it move? No, it's saddled. It's high above Saturn, Nobody can move God's throne. But, you know, there are so many people, Christians, who think that, you know, we need to pray and pray and pray, emphasizing the responsibility of prayer, and they go to the point. They, they just go beyond the, the biblical standard and say, hey, prayer even changes. Prayer changes God's will and his plan. What should we think of these two extreme examples? We... As biblically minded Christians must reject both extremes. So here's my first point tonight. The Bible teaches God's uh, God's sovereignty that is absolute and also his omniscience, which is his perfect knowledge of everything. So we just read, you know, Psalm 103, 19, this verse says what? The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all it talks about his ruling sovereignty over the universe and let's go to psalm 115 and 3 psalm 115 3 the the, the the psalmist here says but our god is in heaven and he does what whatever he pleases it means this and god does whatever he wants Basically, it means that and it teaches that God rules everything according to his own plan and will. And so uh, Proverbs nineteen twenty one, it says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, men devise a lot of plans and wills and wants and desires. And in the end, what's going to stand? God's perfect will and his purpose. And at the same time, the Bible is very clearly teaching God's absolute omniscience, which means he knows everything. Let's go to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46.10, Isaiah says about God's sovereign, uh, perfect knowledge of everything. Isaiah 46.10, it says, "Declaring, It is God saying, declaring the end from the beginning, And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isn't it interesting? God is not just talking about that I'm going to do what's right. Of course, he's going to do what's right. But at the same time, what he does is right and his pleasure. What he desires. So God does everything according to his will. And at the same time, he declares everything from the beginning, from the end to the beginning. That doesn't mean he knows from A to Z, from Z to A. And if you, whatever letters you have in your language, he knows everything from the beginning. So there's no doubt that God has absolute sovereignty over the universe and does everything according to his purpose and plan. God knows everything about the future, but his, this knowledge is just not passive knowledge. And I, it's something that I discovered as, as a theological student. I was in a, I knew about God's foreknowledge, and he knows the future. And I, I kind of understood it this way. Oh, God is kind of passive about the future. So he knows what people will do in the future, or the devil will do in the future. And so he knows kind of what's coming And he kind of prepares, you know, what's going to happen because of the decisions that people will make, his enemies will make. That's kind of the way I understood about God's foreknowledge. But the more I study the Bible, the more I'm certain that that is not the way God knows the future. His knowledge of the future is active future. Active, Active knowledge, not passive knowledge. Which means actually God determines everything from the beginning. It means that God knows everything so well. Why? Because he determines what's going to happen. I know this statement is so large, like so heavy. So we, have a lot, we need a lot of caveats there. Yet, I think the Bible is simple enough to, te- to teach this truth. He declares everything from the beginning, which means he determines everything according to his own will. Then, does it mean... The humans have no freedom and responsibility over their lives. Of course not. The point number two, the Bible emphasizes both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So God's absolute sovereignty does not undermine human responsibility according to the Bible. And on the other hand, while humans are always responsible for their actions, This fact doesn't in any way weaken God's absolute sovereignty. Yeah, it's hard to understand, to be honest with you. But this is the truth that the Bible teaches. So one of the common mistakes people make when they think about God's sovereignty and human responsibility is that they elevate one truth above the other at the expense of the other. So some people say, hey, God is sovereign. So, what's the conclusion? You don't need to pray. He's going to do it. Don't sweat over that. He's going to do it, whatever he wants. And that's wrong. And on the other hand, you know, people, you know, when they elevate human freedom and responsibility, they make God a limited being who doesn't rule with absolute sovereignty and doesn't know the future with perfect knowledge. What should we do? to not fall into either folly. We must embrace the biblical teaching on God's sovereignty and human responsibility as they are presented in the Bible. So God's sovereignty is working in every aspect of the universe, not just our lives. Every span of the space and time of everything, every creature. So let's go to uh, the biblical example. The first example is in Genesis 50. In Genesis 50, you find that Jacob is dead. And then brothers of Joseph is really afraid. Why were they afraid? Did they do anything wrong? (laughs) Weren't they good people? No. They sold Joseph. Who was Joseph then? He was the second Power man of the most powerful kingdom on the earth. He could do everything he wanted to with his brothers. And since Jacob's gone, they were very afraid. I'm like, of course, I, if I, I were them, I would be really, really, really afraid. In Genesis 15, 19 and 20, Joseph, knowing that their brothers were afraid of him killing them, he wanted to soothe their hearts. So what does he say? Genesis 15, 19 and 20. But Joseph said unto them, Do not fear. Let me say, let me say it again. Joseph said unto them, Do not be afraid, or am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones and be comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see here, while the brothers of Joseph were planning an evil thing, action against Joseph, God was doing something else behind the scene, letting them sell Joseph to come down to Egypt to go through all the hassles and in the end, God made him the prime minister of the kingdom of Egypt to do what? To save the people of Jacob. And then he says, Jacob's uh, Joseph says, hey, folks, listen, I know you did evil thing. What does that mean? They were still responsible over their action. Yet he says, but God meant it for good. So God's sovereignty was actively working behind the sin and accomplished what God was pleasing about that situation. Do you see? You know, the two truths are somehow compatibly working together in one passage. And then uh, when it comes to actually our salvation, you know, there are a lot of debates about Calvinism, Arminianism. That's not my point tonight. But at the same time, you know, all believers, whether you're Calvinist or Armenian, believe that God is absolutely sovereign over the salvation of people. Because salvation is the work of God, right? Salvation is the work of God. Let's go to uh, John 6. In John 6, verses 37 through 40, the Lord Jesus reveals a very, very important truth about God's sovereignty over a people's salvation. John six thirty seven, the Lord Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the father who sent me that that of all he has given me. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So who will be saved? Who will come to Jesus? Jesus. Everyone, the Father, chose. That's, you know, God's sovereignty over salvation. And at the same time, verse 40, the Lord says, This is the will of God who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. You see here? this you, you see human responsi- responsibility here? So God chose certain people to salvation. Does that mean that they don't have to do anything? About Jesus, when they see Jesus? No, they have to believe Jesus with their own will, exercising their responsibility and their free will to believe Jesus. Here, Jesus is teaching two great truths again. God's sovereignty over our salvation and human responsibility to believe Jesus. So there's no person who, is, who doesn't believe Jesus and saved. You know, there are people who say, you know, Jews are chosen people, so they don't have to believe Jesus to go to heaven. There are actually many people who believe that. No. What about the babies that are baptized? Whether, you know, if you go to actually Eastern Orthodox Church, they, they dunk you three times as a baby. In the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And so three times baptism somehow regenerate that baby and make him go to heaven? No. This baby is responsible, whether he's baptized as a baby or not. He will have to believe Jesus to be saved. So here we find the two great truths, not clashing each other with each other, but being compatible with each other. And God's sovereignty in determining Jesus' crucifixion Have you thought about that? You know, whose plan was it? Let's go to Acts 4. Acts 4. And whose plan was it? Who planned that Jesus would be crucified? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So God planned it. Then, does it mean that uh, God planned it? So it was carried out according to God's will. But who killed Jesus on the cross? Who? The Jewish, religious Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders. And the Roman soldiers and Pilate and those leaders, you know, they were responsible. So let's look at Peter and uh, what he uh, says about God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the case of Jesus' crucifixion. Acts 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So here, you know, Peter and John were... Uh, told by these religious leaders not to talk about Jesus anymore. And they were sharing that with other people. And verse 24, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against you, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that will, with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see here, who planned Jesus' crucifixion? It was done according to God's purpose. Yet what do they say about the people who crucified Jesus? It was the Herod, the Pilate, and the religious leaders, and the soldiers. They were still responsible over the death of Jesus Christ. But yet, yet, and yet, everything was done according to God's perfect purpose. So again, the two truths, not clashing with each other, but going together harmoniously. So to properly understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we must remember three truths. One. The biblical understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility does not have a contradictory relationship, but a complementary one. So two human eyes, two human reasoning, they may seem contradictory to each other. That's our perspective. But from God's perspective and from the Bible's perspective, they never clash with each other. That's the reason why these passages teach both truths truths at the same time without being ashamed of them. You know, if they thought that they were somehow contradictory to each other, these all, the authors of the Bible wouldn't have done the, it this way. But somehow they knew that these truths are not necessarily contradictory to each other, but they are complementary to each other. And secondly, we must understand God's sovereignty and human respons- responsibility through, through uh, God's two natures. So God is not just a being that has no natures. You know, he has characteristics as, a, as God. And there are two things that we have to remember. First, God is transcendental. What does it mean? It means God, he's beyond space and time. He's above everything. At the same time, God is not just transcendental, but he is personal. He has personality. So let me explain what it means that uh, God is uh, transcendental. Uh, it means this. Uh, this truth reveals that God is all powerful, God who is not constrained by time and space, and He rules the world with perfect sovereignty and perfect knowledge. So, God is so powerful to the point that He passes all limitations that all the creatures have. The universe actually has an end, right? because it has a beginning the scientists who don't believe in god says it too why it started somewhere sometime that it has to stop somewhere sometime yet god goes beyond that have you thought about this when he created one god created the universe he also created time time is not eternal time is not eternal it's a, one of the creations of god So God's not bounded by time. He's outside time. And he can see things at the same time. So when he sees Joe, now I just turned 38. He sees me as one year old, maybe as a a newborn baby, to my death. He sees me through everything. Not just my life, my father's, my father's father's. My father's father's father's. My father's 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 father's. He sees every line of my blood at the same time. And he's not tired of that. He can see things so, so infinitely. So he's infinite being. That's why his sovereignty is absolutely absolute. If you don't know what I'm saying. At the same time, what's amazing about God is this. He's personal God. What does it mean that uh, God is personal? It means that we have We can have a personal relationship with the transcendent God, the infinite God, who is otherwise impossible to know. It means this, when we say God is personal, it means he revealed himself first to us. Have you thought about this? Unless God revealed himself to us first, none of us will be able to know God. None of us will say, yes, this is the word of God. None None of us will say, yes, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of God. Nobody will be able to say it. Why? God is so high. He's so infinite being. Nobody can touch him. Nobody can reach him. Yet at the same time, he's so personal. He wanted to build a personal relationship with us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made us his beloved children. Just as children who receive abundant love from their parents have a responsibility to honor and obey their parents, we have a responsibility to give an account of our lives to God. That's what it means to have, we have, what it means that we have a responsibility to God. He has built a relationship with us, even including unbelievers. In what relationship? It's a still personal relationship, but as a judge. God judges even unbelievers. So they are still responsible over their lives. They have to give every account of their life to God in the end. So first, what we have to remember, sovereignty of God, responsibility of human are compatible. And second, God has two natures, his infinite transcendence, 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 (laughs) and his his transcendental being and his personal And thirdly, we have to remember, um, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is one of biblical mysteries. It's a mystery. And sometimes, you know, when we say, hey, it's a mysterious doctrine, so you don't have to fully understand it. Some Christians get mad at the teacher or the pastor. You got the PhD. Why did you study? You, You are the one who has to explain. But nobody in human history has ever explained what it means that God has three persons and one essence, the Trinity. Nobody has understood it completely. Nobody has been able to explain it completely. And so many people have tried to illustrate it with many illustrations, and they have become heretics. (laughs) Why? They have taught heresies about the Trinity of God. So, we can't fully understand as Christians about God's being, right? Yet, we still believe the Trinity, don't we? We do believe the Trinity. Why? The Bible clearly teaches the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Why not names of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit? Just one name, singular name, Yahweh. The name of God, but the Father is Yahweh, Son is Yahweh, Holy Spirit, Yahweh. Yet, there are not three gods. We're not talking about three Yahwehs, but one Yahweh. It's hard. It's mysterious. Yet, we believe it as believers. What about Jesus' humanity? His full deity and full humanity. And if you study church history, it's really fun. It can be boring, but it's really fun. Why? These people believed something about Jesus' divi- divinity, and they try to defend it at the expense of Jesus' humanity. And on the other hand, there are people who are, are enamored with Jesus' humanity. Oh, God's son became human for us. And then they actually looked, like, de-emphasized the divinity of Christ. Why? Because it's a mystery. So what would you say? So when Jesus died on the cross, did the human Jesus die? Or did God Jesus die? Yes! yes to both you cannot separate jesus into two beings and say there's a one jesus that is human another jesus that is divine no it's one god man 100% god 100% man yet i'm not qualified to explain it fully and you're not qualified to fully understand it yet we all believe if you don't believe that just let me know i'll, I'll let pastor know and then we'll we'll pick kick you out. (laughs) You have to believe Jesus' full deity and full responsibility, whether you understand it or not, because that's what the Bible says. So even if we don't fully understand how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are related, we must accept and believe both of these truths because the Bible clearly teaches them. The relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is a mysterious one, that we cannot fully comprehend. However, remember this. Sometimes, when we believe and follow God, it is more important to worship the mysteriously wonderful God than to fully understand the very complicated God. Let me say it again. Sometimes it's more important to worship God than to understand Him. Many of you are parents, right? Your parent. Do you explain everything to your children? Even as a finite being, I just tell Ariana, Ariana, just do this. Don't do that. She would ask, why, Dad? I love to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't explain things. Hey, to explain it, you, has, has, you have to be at least 17 years old to understand this. But just don't do it. And do it. So even as finite beings, we understand this concept, right? We humans don't understand fully anything about it. I mean, when I see a doctor, he explains so many things about my health. It's in me, but I don't understand the thing about what he's saying. I just say, hey, you don't have to explain it. Just fix me. <laughs> I trust you. Fix me. So that's it. You know, God. We don't have to fully understand what God is and what he does. Yet, we have to worship him instead when we encounter this mysterious aspect of our God. Now, here's a problem. At the beginning of the sermon, I said, we're going to talk about prayer, but I haven't really talked about prayer yet. So let's remember that this sermon is about prayer. And what can we say about prayer in light of what we have learned about God's sovereignty and human responsibility so far? Number three, the Bible commands us to pray with a sense of responsibility due to God's absolute sovereignty. Let me say it again. The Bible commends us to pray with the sense of responsibility due to God's absolute sovereignty. So many people draw a wrong conclusion that the fact that God rules the world with perfect sovereignty takes away human freedom and responsibility. However, the Bible teaches that because of God's sovereignty, we can pray with even greater motivation. In order to understand the biblical concept of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we need to examine how the saints in the Bible reacted to these two truths together. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty in electing God's people for salvation, you know, God chooses some to salvation, doesn't lead to fatalistic determinism. So in other words, the fact that God has sovereignly elected some doesn't excuse us of our responsibility to share the gospel with other people. So John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appoint you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So the fact that Jesus chose them doesn't mean that they're excluded from their responsibility to bear fruit. They have to do what they are supposed to do as the ones that God called them to salvation. And Acts 18 and 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Paul was at Corinth in Acts 18. And if you read through actually First Corinthians, it's quite interesting because he was very afraid. He was in fear and tremble when he was preaching the gospel to the Corinthian people. And somehow, maybe he was a little discouraged. And then the Lord Jesus says, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. You see here? There are people who are chosen by God who would believe the gospel. They haven't heard the gospel yet. But Jesus knew who, who will respond to the gospel. And many people who try to use their little pinny brains and say, Hey, God's sovereignty excludes our responsibility to share the gospel. But look at the Bible. Jesus is using the Lord Jesus is using exactly the same concept. Hey, I've chosen some in Corinth. So Paul, instead of not speaking, go boldly proclaim my name. And some will respond. You know, this truth is amazing to me personally. I know none of you have become, a, you know, been a church planner, and now I am. I haven't thought about it until I became a church planner. But what keeps me going is actually this truth. I know in this town of Cary, there's some whom God has chosen to, not to just salvation, but to carry Sarang Church to be part of this church, knowing that God does that, has the plan for that, it helps me not to be exhausted, not to be helpless, feeling helpless, because I know God is going to use me to draw these people to himself. And the Bible also teaches that uh, the doctrine of God's sovereignty should not be an excuse for us not to pray. Have you thought about this truth, you know, in the, the, on the certain summer on the Mount? The Lord Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 8. Don't be like the Gentiles who repeat themselves a lot so that God would hear their prayers. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows what you need even before you open your mouth. Even before you think, what should I, what I need? He already knows that. So then, you know, human reasoning, Will say, Oh, I don't have to pray. He knows it. He's going to help me with my needs. No. The next page, Matthew 7 7, he says, Ask, seek, and knock. Do you think Jesus is somehow, I don't want to be blasphemous here, I have to be really careful. Jesus is not smart enough to know what he just said and what he's saying now. He said, God knows everything before you ask. And on the other hand, he turned and said, keep praying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because it will be open to you. It will be given to you, and it will be found by you. Keep doing it. Although, while God knows everything we need, we must continue to pray. So Jesus is not, not smart, but he is absolutely wise. And he, in his mind, God's sovereignty is knowing everything we need. And our responsibility to keep praying are compatible. And that's what Jesus teaches here. And let's go to Daniel 9. This is the last passage we're going to look at tonight. Daniel 9, it's it's an amazing actually example that every Christian should follow. The Bible here teaches that the doctrine of God's sovereignty can be a good motivation for us to pray according to God's will. Daniel 9, and there we find Daniel... Is in a very, um, in this very solemn moment. Uh, he was thinking about the, the destiny of his kingdom, Israel, kingdom of Israel. And then in verse 2, Daniel says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, uh, let me say it again. Yeah, in the first year of his reign, Darius here, reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books. The number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So here Daniel was reading this passage, Jeremiah twenty nine ten. It reads, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years, be accomplished at Babylon. I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to Jerusalem, to this place. You see here, Daniel knew that time is about time that God will bring us back to the promised land. He, told, he promised to Jeremiah so that human reasoning, with human reasoning, now you know, oh, it is time. God is going to bring us back to the, the, the land of Israel. What would you do? You will just celebrate, right? Okay, we're going back home. You don't have to worry about anything. Okay, let's just get ready until God moves us. Do nothing. Look at verse 3, what Daniel does. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications. You learned this morning, supplication means begging with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, and with those who keep his covenant and mercy, uh, those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity, we have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to all shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, Because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. What does he do here? He's beginning to confess the sins of the nation of Israel. And then he goes on in his prayer and he requests God to do what he promised. Do his will. Do his perfect plan. His purpose. That he got determined. He was determined to bring Israel back. So Daniel felt the responsibility to confess his sins in prayer and asking God to do what he was going to do. Do you see here? Daniel was motivated by God's sovereign will, his sovereign plan that now I can pray according to God's perfect will and now I can. he's going to answer my prayer according to his perfect will. So with human mind, Premium reasoning, God's suffering to somehow, you know, de emphasizes the responsibility of prayers. But according to Daniel's knowledge, his reasoning, no. When I know God's perfect will, I can now pray for that. And that he's going to do what he promised to do. That's why we need to read the Bible. As you read the Bible, you find God's plan and his will every page of this book. What do you do with those wills and purposes and plans. You just pray for them. And God is going to answer your prayer. Why? You are praying according to his perfect will. And you can be absolutely certain that it's going to be done. So here is the thesis, the main statement of tonight's message. Prayer changes things because prayer is a means by which God sovereignly appointed to carry out his will. And plan. Let me say it again. Prayer changes things because prayer is a means by which God sovereignly appointed to carry out His will and plan. The prayer, the concept of prayer. When we talk about topic of prayer, we have to understand this: this prayer is a means by which God accomplishes His sovereign will. This is a means that God determined to use to bring out, to bring forth His perfect pleasures. So C.H. Spurgeon said this wise statements, these wise words here. My brothers, prayer is an essential part of the providence of God. So essential that you will always find that when God delivers his people, his people have been praying for that deliverance. They tell us that prayer doesn't affect the Most High and cannot alter his purposes. We never thought it did. It means that, you know, Prayer doesn't move his throne. (laughs) That's not it. But prayer is a part of the purpose and plan and a most effective will in the machinery of providence. The Lord sets his people praying and then he blesses them. You see here? When God wants to accomplish his will in our lives, he first causes us to pray for that. How can we do that? he revealed his will in this book so as we discover his will we pray according to this will and he accomplishes his will so this is an amazing thing actually whenever i become prayerless or lazy in prayer i chastise me like not chastise me ch- chides me like this hey joe you're missing out you're missing out you're missing out the opportunities to be at the center of god's will By not praying according to his will. It's not just that I'm lazy and sinful because I'm not not praying, but I'm missing out on a lot of blessings. So whenever we pray according to his word, his will, we are at the center of God's perfect will, his sovereign will. And he and and us, we work together. I don't know how he, he did that. I mean, I wouldn't have done that if I were God. But somehow he has is a personal God. He wanted to bring us in to be mixed with his sovereign will so that we can do what we need to do according to his perfect will. So let's keep that in mind as we think about prayer and as we pray together this time. Okay, the sermon is over.